0: Hi, everybody, this is Nancy Miller for My Creative Life, the podcast about creatives, how and why they make the work that they do. Special guest today is Dr. Sarah Park Dalin and she is an associate professor at the School of Information Sciences at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Her research addresses trans racially adopted Koreans um, in children's literature. Frank Carpenter and Francis Carpenter and their writings for children and diversity in children's literature and library education. Hi, Sarah, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm good, thank you so
1: much for having me.
0: Well, this is um, an honor for me, um, for those who are listening, um, and some of may have heard from a previous podcast, um, while I was getting my MFA in illustration, we had to do a written thesis, and some of your work I cited in my thesis, so this is really, um, you're such an advocate for um, Korean, or Asian American, actually, um, youth literature, and uh, it's, it's an honor to have you as a guest today.
1: Thank you so much. Um, I, I mean, the the best thing for any scholar to hear is that their work is being used and cited. And so thank you so much for um, letting me be a part of your thesis. Well, um,
0: well, I I can only imagine the work that it took to bring that information together in a way that was so clear for the average person because I by no means am a scholar in any way and to have that graphic and then having somebody with your background pull all that information together I just it blows my mind away I was like how did she do that
1: (laughs) well I mean I worked together with um so like just to clarify you know Uh for the um 2016 or 2015 and 2018 infographics I did not pull that data on my own. We worked together Mm -hmm. with the um, Cooperative Children's Book Center librarians at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And with our illustrator, David Hike, we went back and forth a lot asking questions um, because we had the tables that they put up publicly for everybody to see, um, but we wanted to dig deeper into the numbers, and so the librarians there, um, particularly KT Horning, uh, she was director at the time, and Madeline Tyner, were just really, really helpful in helping us go beyond just the numbers that were in the tables and, and getting to more specifics. Um, so it was it was truly a team effort, and whenever I hear that the infographic is being used, I email David, and I'm like, hey, guess what? I saw it again! so it's really exciting to to hear whenever um it's making a difference in in the world.
0: Well, it is and it truly was it really helped support my thesis about um diversity in children's literature like um how how much more we could do. So and it was great <laughs> Mm-hmm. Hearing, um, as I got to research a little bit more about you, you have also been a guest lecturer for the Baker Diversity mm-hmm. uh, Lectures, um, mm-hmm. and you talked about how your focus was on transracially adopted Koreans in youth literature and Asian American youth literature, and I was wondering, would you share for the audience? I know you've shared it before on other podcasts, <laughs> but
1: I would love uh, for them to hear about it sure um so i was an undergraduate asian american studies and history double major at ucla Um, and ucla has a really uh really well respected asian american studies program Um, so i continued on with my master's degree in asian american studies and honestly i thought i was going to be a historian um or at least or maybe like a a high school history teacher Um, but i and and i had grown up being a voracious reader had never seen myself seen a Korean American in a children's book and it it didn't occur to me you know um that I was invisible uh but I um when I was in graduate school I found Eve Bunting's *Smoky Night and um that takes place during the Los Angeles uprisings I was 12 when they happened and my dad owned a grocery store in Inglewood and so it was a, a huge, huge event in my childhood. And so when I found this picture book that takes place during um, the LA uprisings and there was a Korean-American store owner character, I was just blown away. This is the first time I had seen um, a Korean-American in a picture book. But she was very much othered, right, because the protagonist is a, a young, ambiguously brown a uh, boy who talks about Mrs. Kim as, you know, the grocery store owner across the street. We don't go to her store and things like that. So I started looking, well, if if there could be a book about the LA uprisings from his perspective, could there be one from a Korean American perspective? And I started looking and I didn't find exactly what I was looking for, but I found Marie Lee who had written Necessary Roughness and Saying Goodbye and Finding My Voice and um, and, and she had written about the LA Uprisings in one of her young adult novels, um, but it was after the LA upri- Uprisings. The story took place primarily at Harvard when her protagonist, Ellen Sung, was um, in her first year of college, and uh, Black-Korean relations were a major part of that story. And so um, though it was close to what I was looking for, it wasn't exactly what I was looking for. But finding these books that were published at a time when I was a teenage reader, um, I was just so surprised. And the problem there is that uh, it's it's a question of access, right? Like these books were available, but no one had told me about them. Um, And so then I pivoted and decided that I wanted to study Korean American children's books. And so I ended up doing my thesis on that. um, And then I um, decided to get my PhD. Uh, When I was doing my thesis, I realized that there was There were actually quite a lot of Asian American children's books, especially Chinese American and and Japanese American. And, you know, we are now seeing a great number of Southeast Asian, Thai, Vietnamese, et cetera, children's books. It is super, super exciting. Um, And at the time, there wasn't a lot of research on the existing children's books that were available. And so I thought this was something that I could contribute to. So I decided to go get my PhD. And um, when I was, In my master's degree program at UCLA, uh, one of my classmates was an adopted Korean and we we became very good friends. And as I started studying children's books, um, some of, a good number of the books that I found that featured Korean Americans featured Korean adoptees. And I found this to be very interesting. And as she told me her life story and as her adoption journey continued to unfold, like literally before our eyes, there was just such dissonance um, between the very happily ever after, my family is forever kinds of stories I was reading in children's books, and the actual events that were happening in her life. And as scholarship emerged about Korean adoptees, as I read more of uh, memoirs and poetry and short, uh, short story collections, anthologies featuring adopted Koreans, I, I realized just how different children's books were in portraying Korean adoptee experiences. And one of the things that was really striking is that the majority of the stories about adopted Koreans were not written by adopted Koreans. They were, almost half of them were written by white adoptive mothers. Um, And so when I decided to get my PhD, um, I knew that I wanted to continue studying Korean-American children's books, um, and my advisors encouraged me to pick a very, very specific, narrow topic and go very deeply. And so um, I thought about representations of the Korean War, representations of Japanese occupation, representations of adopted Koreans, representations of immigration, um, all these different things. And the Korean adoption one was the most compelling. Um, I was very and I continue to be very aware of my outsider status as a non-adopted person studying adoption narratives. I've done it imperfectly, but I hope that I I do it with humility um, and in community uh, with adopted um, Koreans, adoption scholars. Um, I am now married to an adopted Korean, but we met like after I graduated (laughs) and after I finished my dissertation. Um, But yeah, so I ended up looking at 51 um, children's books, you know, picture books through young adult novels and short story collections, um, a lot of nonfiction. Uh, literally titled things like what it's like to be adopted. Um, And yeah, I found I think that 20 or 21 of them were written by white adoptive mothers. Um, I think only three were uh, created by adopted Koreans. Two of them were uh written and illustrated sort of like a kinko's fedex you know you make it at home and you take it to the store to get bound um, and chris tempete who is an adopted korean from hawaii he uh illustrated ironically eve bunting's <laughs> picture book chinwoo um and so he was the only adopted korean who was traditionally published um, in in the 51 books that i had that i had looked at so that's how I got into it. And that was over 20 years ago. It's really weird. Like starting last year, I was like, oh, I've been doing this for 20 years. And now this year I'm like, oh, I've been doing this for more than 20 years. Oh and gosh. so much has changed.
0: Wow, well, it's amazing. And I just feel like when I did my thesis, I feel like I just barely scratched the surface of yeah. things. And then you realize, like, I think just to I couldn't imagine getting a, a doctorate in in mm-hmm. the topic. It would be fascinating. But it's just like yeah all the research and then just your own um reading and just just deciphering and all of this information that you've collected and put out there for people to be aware of i think it's wonderful
1: Oh, thank thank you. you. It was it was a lot more manageable when there were not as many books. So now having so much more, so many more books, so much more scholarship and also all of the social media surrounding um, the books, pub, you know, promotions, panels like all of this. It's it's a good problem to have that now we this this um, an embarrassment of riches is really what it is now, but we still need more. We still need more. And
0: then I was wondering, mm-hmm. because now you are, um, well, you've been a professor for some time now, and I was curious, what what inspired you to um, become a, an educator?
1: Um, well, like a very prototypical Korean American family, I was told that I was going to be a lawyer. Um, I think my parents knew that I was uh, not very good with numbers and, and math, um, so hashtag bad Asian, but... Mm-hmm. Um, They they encouraged me to be a lawyer, and I thought that's what I was going to do, and that's why I majored in history in um, college, but um, when I um, learned about the Asian American Studies major, um, I actually decided that I wanted to be a high school history teacher instead, Um, and my parents also thought being a a public school teacher would be a great profession for me, Um, and so they they encouraged that as well, Um, but when oh and then when i found um smoky night and started thinking about um, studying children's books and writing my thesis on that um then i thought i wanted to be a children's librarian and there's still a part of me that's like that would be so great to be a children's librarian um but my i talked to my mom and she um said that i should do a phd instead she didn't want me to have two masters she wanted me to like go to the next level um and so you know, I talked to my advisor, um, Dr. Clara Chu at UCLA. She had a joint appointment in information studies and Asian American studies. So she was my thesis chair. And she actually, she was the first to say that I should do a PhD. And then I told my mom that um, Clara said I should do a PhD. And so my mom was like, yeah, you should totally do a PhD. Um, and, and so I, you know, I, I wanted to contribute to research. And I also then thought, Well, rather than being a children's librarian, which is a really important job, I could be a professor who teaches children's librarians. um, And that way my impact would be different because then I could teach each librarian who's gonna go out and impact the lives of children. And so the ripple effect of that would be different from me, you know, serving serving a community as a children's librarian. Um, And so I don't think either is more important than the other. It's just what kind of impact you want to make. Um, And so that's why I decided to become a professor, because I wanted to produce research and because I wanted to Teach children's librarians. And it, it goes back to what I said about access before, where Marie Lee's books, Lawrence Yep's books, uh, Yoshika Uchida's books, they all existed when I was a kid, but no one shared them with me. And so I wanted to teach children's librarians who were going to share those books with their readers so that it wouldn't be a question of access for anyone. So that's that was one of my main motivating goals.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I looked at your class online, and you had the mm-hmm. book list, and I was like, oh, a yeah. oh, class would be so much fun to take. I was like, I'd never seen yeah. a class like that. I guess, well, mm-hmm. I guess I didn't really understand, like, oh, this is what librarians get to do, uh-huh. like, for oh. college classes. I was like, this is fun. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I was like, all yeah. these amazing books. And how do you... Uh-huh. Narrow down. I'm sorry, this was oh in my questions. <laughs> okay. But I was like, how does she narrow it down? How do you know it's like so this hard? Is the yeah. book like because there's yeah. so many fantastic books out there? Like, yeah. what makes you go like, yeah. I just have to have my students like know about this book so that yeah. this will carry
1: on. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's so hard. So are you are you talking about the social justice class or the Asian American youth class or both? I, I, think, I think I posted reading lists.
0: Yeah, I think both of them were fantastic.
1: (laughs) It's it's so hard. So let's talk about the Asian Am Youth Lit class. So and I I was just writing to someone about this recently, um, but I, because I was also a history major, I think very like chronologically. And so I start with um, Jade Snow Wong's fifth Chinese daughter, because it's one of the earlier accounts of being a Chinese American in the United States, Um, a Chinese American girl, like a girlhood, right, in the United States. And then I pair it with Debbie Mechuko Florence's Jasmine to gucci books and you know there's like six or seven of them now and so i just let my students pick any one of them there is an order to them but like you can still read them out of order um and so you know i, I start and and i i start just with like asian american girlhood um and 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 like compare, you know, what was it like for Chinese American immigrant girl in uh, the 1940s? And what is it now contemporarily like for a Japanese American girl Um, and and how what are the different ways in which these stories are told? And and they're told for different reading levels. And there's so much about them that's different, but there's also like commonalities that we can discuss. Right. And my students have and I've done that twice now, starting that way. Mm -hmm. And my students have really um, we've had really productive conversations. I, you know, Japanese-American incarceration is something that absolutely has to be discussed. Anti-Chinese exclusion, the exclusion law, uh, or the Exclusion Act of 1882 absolutely has to be discussed. Um, I think, and and because this is a class primarily for master's degree students um, Mm -hmm. who are preparing to be librarians, um, we we have to do breadth, and we also have to talk about award winners and things like that, right? And so I it's it's been great that so many Asian Americans have been winning um Newbery Awards and the Apollo Award, et cetera. And so I make sure that there's a good representation of those books on the syllabus. Um and you know, Asian American, we can define that um so broadly, right? And so including um an Iraqi writer such as um, or sorry, an Iranian writer such as uh um a deep quorum the Darius the Great is not okay right it's it's just such a phenomenal young adult novel that my students are really connected with um and then you know also making sure that we talk and so much of our immigration is tied to war and to conflict right like Jianya who's a historian at Northwestern has an article titled Moved by War where she traces like all post-1950 Korean immigration to the United States, um, she traces it back to the, to the war. Uh, Korean war brides, Korean adoptees, um, just all the social upheaval happening in Korea pushed a lot of people to migrate. Um, and so just looking at the way that war and American militarism has also caused like immigration um, pushes and, uh, and so looking at uh, Vietnamese migrations or or you know, refugees, but also not essentializing Asian Americans only to those things, right? And so if I were to teach a book like um Phi's uh, My Footprints. So he's a Vietnamese American. his uh his kid song, who's the protagonist of that book is also part Vietnamese. And that's an important part of the story, but that's not a story that is, tied specifically to the american war in vietnam whereas my footprints i'm sorry um, a different pond his first picture book the american war in vietnam plays a really big role in that and so thinking about the balance of i want to connect our our migrations to the wars that caused our migrations but that's not all that we're about right um and so that's you know another reason why i would teach jasmine taguchi alongside stories of Japanese American incarceration. Um, we also look at adoption narratives obviously, since that's um, uh, such an important topic and also a topic that's dear to my heart. Um, and so for that, um, I'll typically have students read an article. I'll you know, it was harder to do this assignment before when there weren't really um, good adoption stories written by adopted people right, that were easily accessible. But when Lisa Sholbum, um, she's a Swedish, a Korean-Swedish adoptee, she published a book called Palimpsest, a graphic memoir. And even though her story takes place in Sweden, her graphic memoir was translated into English. And there's so many things about adoption um, that are are common to American Korean adoptees, and so um, ever since that memoir came out, I started assigning that, and then ha- and then like assigning an academic article about adoption, whether it's something I wrote or my colleague Joanne Yi also has a really great article, and then I'll ask students to find a picture book that features a transracially adopted Asian and bring it to class um, and be ready to discuss, and then we'll do an activity during class, like I'll have them raise their hands in in zoom because i teach online and i'll say okay keep your hand raised if your picture book was written by an adopted person and like almost every single hand goes down because none of them were written by an adopted person and then i'll say like keep you know raise your hand if it's illustrated by an adopted person and then the people who brought jinwoo are going to raise their hands right um you know, keep your hand raised if it's a Korean adoptee, keep your hand raised if it's a Chinese adoptee, et cetera. And so we do sort of this audit among the random picture books that my students bring to class. Um, So that's one of the things that I do. Um, Yeah, I you know, I I have to audit my own syllabi. I have to make sure, as I said before, that we have a good representation of um, people from different parts of Asia um that different time periods different historical events are represented i also look at publisher diversity like oh. it's a problem if all the books are from the big five and mm-hmm. you know so i make sure that i have books published by smaller presses as well um and then genre diversity format diversity um i was really embarrassed uh, a previous semester a student at the end of the class was like i'm surprised we didn't read any graphic novels and i was like How did I miss that? Oh, my goodness. Um, And so, yeah, now, you know, and I love graphic novels. My daughter loves graphic novels. And so I was, you know, I think I was just so caught up in looking at other kinds of diversity within my syllabus that I completely didn't even notice that I hadn't assigned a single graphic novel, (laughs) Um, which in this day and age, it's it's just, that's really embarrassing. Um, But yeah, it's really hard. Uh, The other thing is that Um, The iSchool has some classes are eight week classes instead of a full 16 week semester, and so it's especially hard for those eight weeks, like how do you, how do you go over the entirety of children's literature in eight weeks, how do you go over like the entirety of Asian American youth literature in eight weeks, Um, so it's been challenging but. Um but it's it's a good exercise because I also teach, you know, one hour workshops on Asian American youth lit. so it's it's good to to be able to deliver that information in different time segments.
0: That's amazing. Like I really wish now, like I think back on my um master's degree, I really wish I'd kind of taken a class like yours to inform because illustrating that kind of topic and you go like, you you bring so many different variety into your class. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, my visual library and understanding would be so much more broader And uh, so yeah that that's just so great that you let your students have you know what they're bringing to the class. But then I was kind of curious so after they finished the program, have you mm-hmm. um, gotten to see some of how they've diversified and kind of mm-hmm. brought more to their, st- to, well, the young readers
1: that they interact with. Well, one of the most exciting things when I was at my previous institution, um, you know, in my uh, survey children's literature course, I always assigned something by Debbie Reese. Um, She's one of the, she's the founder of American Indians in children's literature blog. Um, And she is, I think, like, no argument she is the most well-known scholar of American Indians and children's literature um, that we have she's an absolute treasure and so I always assign something by her and make sure that my students know about her blog and all the books that she reviews Um, And when I visited, and I like to go around the libraries and visit my students who are working in different places, Um, but I visited one of my students who was the children's librarian at our central library, um, Hennepin County Central, and it wasn't even November, but she had this like humongous display right when you walked in of as many Indigenous author children's books as she could fit onto this humongous bookshelf that like lines um the middle of the entryway into the children's room and so seeing things like that has been really exciting um, the way that my students now have access to resources Um, that maybe they hadn't been exposed to before Um, and you know everyone is still learning I'm still learning I'm constantly adding to the list of resources that I share with my students it's probably overwhelming at this point because after 20 years of doing this I have a really long list Um, but just being able to provide those resources and then going and seeing my my students um, um, enact you know Big things in their library systems has been really great. I also hear from students. They either um, I love snail mail, <laughs> so they send me um, letters or cards about you know what they're doing in their their libraries, or they'll send me an email, which is really which is really lovely too, about how they are doing something in their workplace based on something they learned in my class, and so. A recent example is um, my students conduct diversity audits as their final assignment, and they can do that either on an actual library collection or they might audit like the NPR best books list or something. Um, And I've had uh, a good number of emails from students tell me that based on a diversity audit they did on their own library collection, these are the changes that they're making or the new purchases that they made or whatever. So, it's really gratifying to um, hear from my students who are doing things like that. Um, Yeah, I love it. Oh, well, I can, uh, I just, I would just sit in your class and be just
0: fascinated because you're so fascinating, listen to all of this Mm -hmm. stuff. And I'm like, need to get on my reading list. Mm -hmm. I was like, I need to read this. I need to be reading this. So, and I'm sure they're just fantastic books to read just in general, but I'm just like, wow. And Mm -hmm. thank you so much for putting Mm -hmm. that out there because I know a lot of times for, uh, you know collegiate classes and graduate classes that mm-hmm. stuff would be like private you know like on yeah or somewhere yeah
1: and <laughs> that public yeah. and I think that is yeah. fantastic so thank well,
0: the you. reason
1: the reason I do it is because I think I have a reputation of assigning a lot of readings uh-huh. and the reason I do though is because actual children's and and young adult librarians they do read three to you know three to four novels per week and like 20 picture books per week or whatever and so I Don't feel bad assigning two to three chapter books or young adult novels per week for my students to read because that's what they're actually going to do when they're they're working but anyway I think I developed sort of a reputation and so I often at the end of a semester will get emails from students who are enrolled in the next semester asking if I have my reading list ready yet because they want to read over winter break or summer break or something like that so that's why I got into the habit of um, posting just the reading list and sometimes like the first week of Mm -hmm. um, additional scholarly readings that my students will have to do or assignments that they might have to prepare Um, I don't know if if someone were to go look at my website now they'd be like you have not been consistent in posting your reading list and I haven't because I've been so busy Um, but that that is why um, I post my list so so that my it's primarily so that my students um, can can start reading early Um, and I should also mention for the diversity audit just because I was reviewing stuff this morning um, I rely heavily heavily on librarian Karen Jensen's diversity audit resources she's got a lot of blog posts and how-to guides Lee and Lowe has a diversity audit resource on their website um and so I rely heavily on on their resources in order to craft the assignment that my students have to do wow just want to give them credit
0: <laughs> wow it's like librarians are your best friends because it's like there's so much information out there and like uh, and, and speaking, if if I had spoken, I really wish, I was like, man, I wish I'd talk to more librarians <laughs> when I was doing my thesis. It would have made it easier because they're mm-hmm. just so, well, they're friendly and they're educators too, but they yeah. just have an idea of how those collections are put together. Yeah. Like all of that, like I never yeah. really thought about it. Like how yeah. every little book is like intentionally thought about how it's part of this bigger yeah. family of books that will go out to yeah. the public. Yeah. And yeah. like-
1: and how thoughtful every decision is made so yeah yeah somebody thought about that book or that bundle of books because oftentimes books are purchased in bundles as well but um yeah that's that's a librarian's job to know how to curate um, a balanced collection that meets the needs of its users so yeah Mm -hmm. and
0: I remember also from the Baker's Mm -hmm. lecture series (laughs) you talked about your involvement in creating. A kind of um i guess a rubric to kind of go over what books would be a good fit for showing that kind of diversity for um asian american uh youth literature and would you talk about that because i just thought it was fascinating i never heard yeah. of this before and i wish i had yeah. during my thesis i was like oh man it's like a redo i'm making yeah. up for the things that i didn't delve for, further yeah.
1: enough into so yeah well we're always learning and new resources are always coming out so um so i i don't remember what year it was i mean i've been a member of apollo for a very long time it's just one of it's it's um so close to my heart because it's um the asian american librarians (laughs) uh but um so uh I don't know maybe 10 years ago or so they had asked me and and a few other librarians to start putting together these lists of Asian American children's books and um like I said before there there were books there there weren't as many but we started putting together just basic bibliographies of you know the Cambodian diaspora the Vietnamese diaspora the Korean diaspora Chinese Chinese was huge that list was so long um but we uh started putting together these lists and i think we revised them and updated them a couple times and then um i uh, several years later amy breslin i think was tasked with um the the um job of updating these lists but by the time that happened in 2020 I mean, it has been amazing to see how Asian American youth literature has grown. Um, and so we were looking, and she she had two other people that she was working with, Becky Lettersich and Kristen Kuisnek. um And then I think they called me because I had previously worked on the list for such a long time. Um, and we were like, okay, how are we gonna do this? And I was like, I don't have time to read every single thing. <laughs> um, and we wanted to make the, the list much more selective, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we decided, well, before we actually make these new revised updated lists, we should probably have a rubric because that will help us, um, that that will give us the criteria by which we decide whether or not a book should be included. Uh, and so, um, so that's how we started with, um, I think it was, we started talking in 2020. We worked on it in 2021. I believe we finalized it in the fall of 2021 it took a long time um you know we had examples that we were using such as the uh, CIBC the Council on Interracial Books for Children's 10 Quick Ways to Analyze Children's Books for Racism and Sexism which whenever I say that I say there is no quick way you have to really understand microaggressions and nuance and be immersed in a community um, but anyway it is it is still a helpful guide um the hijabi librarians had um They had just published uh, recently their um, evaluation uh, guide for Muslims in children's literature, and so that was really, really helpful. So we looked at um, existing rubrics like those and then decided, you know, we created one that was specific to Asian Pacific Americans. Um, We met weekly for one to two hours at a time uh we had to decide not just on content but on format we decided on a on a table format to put um uh text and illustrations side by side um and then yeah and and then um after we uh finished the rubric and the uh Apollo executive board approved it we started giving workshops and presentations on it. And so we have a, a Baker lecture. Um, Dr. Cook invited us to, to talk about it. Um, and we've also presented it at different conferences like Wisconsin's Power Up Conference, the ALSC National Institute, uh, my own institution, um, the iSchool Center for Children's Books asked for a presentation, so we did that. And then, you know, I, I assign it in my classes and, um, and share it whenever I have an opportunity to. So yeah, it's it was a really, really great um, uh, project to be a part of. and I'm I'm still very close and with um Amy and Becky and Kristen and and we still continue to try to promote it whenever we can. and we're open to giving workshops and things. So
0: yeah. Oh, wonderful. Well, I'll put a link to it for those mm-hmm. people who are interested in learning a little bit more about it cuz I did find Great. it was fascinating and it's oh, good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I thought it was really helpful because it does inform like huh. there are choices or things that I make as a children's book illustrator and how mm-hmm. I portray mm-hmm. um Asian American um mm-hmm. characters and yeah. and those things. So, I thought it was it was wonderful mm-hmm. to have that side of, you know, we're a librarian because librarians are helping to you know create these collections for yeah. the youth and mm-hmm. so thank you for sharing that yeah absolutely and then um i had heard on book friends forever and uh-huh. also a side note because um you're also represented by aaron murphy <laughs> literary <laughs> agency um <laughs> i kind of wanted to hear more about that side of you because you're okay. you're writing um uh, I assume picture books, but who knows mm-hmm. middle grade? <laughs> y a, it could be all of them um because you're a you know an accomplished academic scholar. Um, but this was interesting to be like, oh, she's going to write. I mean, that'd be like perfect because I like she's a librarian. and then she teaches these. <laughs> classes. I was like, oh my goodness, i I just, yeah, so I'm excited to learn more about that side of you.
1: Sure. Um, So it's one of those things like you, you know, like as a kid, you always want to grow up and be a famous writer, Um, especially if you're a reader, then like your dream is to grow up being a writer. Right. Um, And then when I first found other Asian American children's books in graduate school, I was like, I want to write children's books too. And I literally, like, I got, you know, the the Reader's Digest for children's book writers and illustrators, and I read every single page, read about all the publishers. Um, So I was serious. I was going to be a children's book writer um, while while doing all my academic stuff too. Uh, That didn't pan out. Um, I, I became so immersed in academia, which, you know, is how it usually goes when you're doing a PhD. You just like, you just get really, really into it. Um, and, um, and, and so I sort of set aside the idea for, I guess, like almost two decades. And it was always there, like, oh, you know, like, I really want to do this too. I'm studying this and I really want to do this too. Um, and a few years ago, I think it was 2019, um, mike jung andrea Wang, and debbie michigo florence came to minnesota which is where i lived at the time uh because emla was hosting one of their client retreats here and so i picked up mike from the airport and then we hung out with andrea and debbie and um and 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 one of their uh, debbie's agent is also trisha and trisha had um asked mike if because she knew that we had all hung out together and she at the retreat she asked mike if i was thinking about writing children's books and he was like I think so and so that's how we got connected um and I didn't have a solid idea at the time so Trisha and I had a really great phone call but I didn't have like a solid idea I didn't have a transcript or any or not a transcript a manuscript or anything and so she said well just please keep me in mind if you do have an idea and so a year later maybe I'm trying to remember the timeline but however long it was at least a year um i came up with an idea and so i emailed her and was like i have an idea can we talk and so we talked and um and i know that it is very 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 rare for it to happen this way i have friends who are still looking for agents i have friends it took them decades to find agents and so i recognize just how um how special and exceptional my situation was um But yeah, we signed, and I, that manuscript idea that I had is a co-written picture book, nonfiction, and um, that's all I'm going to say about that, except that it's out on sub, Um, I, yeah, it's out on sub, so, you know, just waiting to hear more news, Um, um, I want to write nonfiction, Um, I, I don't know that i will ever write fiction like never say never but right now my interest um maybe because i'm an academic i really want to write nonfiction, and so um i have another co-written proposal out for a non-fiction uh which i'm not going to say much more about but i think mm-hmm. that's the one that we're going to hear news on sooner so hopefully mm-hmm. um, we'll have good news to share there and um the third one which i'll talk more openly about um I always have a lot of ideas it's it's finishing that takes that's really the issue um but when I was uh at UCLA um I worked at the Asian American Studies Center as a front desk receptionist and the director at the time was Don Nakanishi and he was also a professor of Asian American Studies and so when I did my master's degree he taught sort of like our foundations um class and he also served on my thesis committee um and so um So he's a really, really well-respected Asian American Studies scholar. He was, I think, twice president of the Association for Asian American Studies, um, which is the National Scholarly Association for us. And um, he had been at UCLA for a few years in the 1980s. Uh, when he went up for tenure, and he was denied tenure. Um, And there was some, you know, racism, obviously. And also, um, the people who reviewed his tenure case had no expertise in Asian American studies, Asian American issues or anything like that. And so he was denied tenure, but he decided to fight his tenure case. Mm -hmm. And um, after three years, he won. And it was it was huge. Like I just said. He he fought and he won. But in between those three years, um, there was just so much going on with student activism, with community organizing, with politicians all across the country, writing letters with academics all across the country, writing letters of support. I, I mean, it was huge. And like as he appealed every stage, it just like escalated and got bigger and bigger. Um, and so I have always been really impressed with um with don nakanishi as my mentor as one of my committee members as someone who really um who who did really big things in in the field um he was one of the first tenured asian americans who did asian american studies he helped build up the asian american studies center which um you know does a lot of organizing with community orgs and publishes a lot of really really important books and resources um and has just a tremendous impact on the field and so i am working on a proposal to write a nonfiction young adult book about don nakanishi's tenure case um, and his victory um, and just the impact that that has had on the many students who went through the master's degree program who then went on to get phds and are now professors in asian american studies programs across the country or other programs like i'm in library and information science Um, but, but just, I, I, you know, and today with, um, the push for Asian American studies in K-12 education, um, you know, in Illinois, we became the first state in the country currently known as the United States to implement the TEACH Act, teaching, um, equitable Asian American community history. So every public school student in the state of Illinois has to learn one unit of Asian American history. So I've been working with my colleagues in the College of Education Mm -hmm. to put together these teaching modules, um, so that. and and they're publicly available so it's not just um it's not just uh uh Illinois educators who can take these modules but anyone anywhere with internet can can take our modules um but Rhode Island Connecticut um New Jersey there is an ethnic studies requirement in California um and there are movements in in other states to implement a similar um Asian American history mandate and so just thinking about you know um the how important it is to learn Asian-American history at a younger age and also to learn about someone like Don Nakanishi and um, the impact that he had on growing um, Asian-American studies, on mentoring Asian-American studies graduate students and things like that so that's the third one that I'm working on mm-hmm. um and and you know I'm, I'm working I'm at the proposal stage like I went to UCLA um, in January uh to the archives mm-hmm. there the Asian American Studies Center has um, a lot of archives on um, on his tenure case and so I looked through uh those and I have to go back for another probably a two-week trip mm-hmm. to really look at everything um but um, I think I I have enough for the proposal, at least. So that's what I'm working on now. So so as you saw on my website, which you made the beautiful illustration for, I just want to give you a plug for that. Um, the, the book section only has my academic works, but I'm hoping that coming soon, we can take that down and put um, news about children's books that I'm working on.
0: Well, I know that will happen. And, and it was an honor to create the artwork uh, for your website. It was just, I was like, so honored. I was like, "Oh my gosh, I, I, you know, it's always like this weird like somebody would actually hire me to make a piece of work for something special like that." And it is such an honor. And I definitely know for certain that your books that will be updated soon with your book. So that is so exciting. I hope
1: so. Well, oh, I, I loved following your process, like when you posted those videos, um, yeah. like the the one where you were rolling the papers, like I was like, yeah. I know what she's working on. It was so exciting. And I think your work is gorgeous, too. And so um, as soon as I saw your uh, your portfolio, I was like, I know it, she is exactly the person who I want to design the art for my website. It was like a no brainer.
0: Oh, well, it yeah. means mm-hmm. a lot, because I know art is a subjective thing, and it's one of those yeah. things not for everybody, but thank you mm-hmm. so much, Sarah, mm-hmm. and it was yeah, such yeah. a pleasure. I had the best time making it. I was like, this is so much fun. It was like, it looked like things, it. I came to my studio. I was like, I uh-huh. get to paint. I'm getting to cut. Paint, I'm getting to, you know, experiment, mm-hmm. and you were so patient, and I think it's mm-hmm. because you have a heart of a teacher. <laughs> you deal with <laughs> Such a lot of different type of personalities. <laughs> so, so I was always like, mm-hmm. oh, she's so patient and she's so nice. <laughs> so thank yeah. you so much. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, mm-hmm. but I am looking forward to definitely adding mm-hmm. your books to my collection mm-hmm. in the future. So mm-hmm. now with everything mm-hmm. that you do, because it, it just mm-hmm. blows my mind that you are writing academic books. You are mm-hmm. writing, um, you know, nonfiction children's books and doing all this research. And then you would mention your mom and then, you know, all of these things. How do you, how do you do it all? Like I, that
1: you get a lot done. I mean, you are getting it done. (laughs) Um, I ask myself that every day, how am I going to get this done? Uh, Well, I have a great family. Uh, Let's start there. So I do have a daughter, she's nine. And um, I think my, I was telling my husband, I think we sort of like sheltered her a little bit during the pandemic. Uh, just because, like, we felt bad that she couldn't go to school or whatever. But recently, I was like, "Wait, she can do more around the house." And so we have really upped the the chores that she is doing, uh, and so that has really helped recently. Um, and my husband is is also just really phenomenal. Um, he 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 really supports me in my work, and so he's very his work schedule is not very flexible. But where he can be flexible, he's he's very supportive in making sure that I get to do the things that I want to do. Um, and in fact, sometimes he'll be like, do you want to do X, Y, and Z? I can do X, Y, and Z so that you can go and do your thing. And so um, that, that's that been really great. And that's not to say it's perfect. Like I'm imperfect. My husband and child are imperfect. Um, but we somehow have managed to make it work. Um, it, it took me more than 40 years to figure out a to-do system that works for me. Um, and so I have like this, um, standing desk calendar that I put and just perch it right in front of my monitor. Um, and I realized that I can't use like a, a planner book because that closes and then I don't look at it. But if I have a standing desk calendar where I just have my to-do tasks, um, that has helped me to to stay um, on time. Um, but sometimes, you know, I, I've heard Grace Lynn talk about this and she's said, I'm just gonna have to accept that my house is gonna be empty because if I want to get my art done, if I want to get my writing done, then something's gotta give and I'm just gonna have to be okay with a messy house. Mm-hmm. And my husband and I are both very clean people, but um I think we have both also begun to accept that sometimes there's just gonna be crumbs on the floor. Um we I'm I'm actually really good at making sure that the, the sink is is always empty. But other things, I'm like, sometimes there's just going to be crumbs on the floor. And and today, my background, my books are pretty well organized. But you should have seen it yesterday; <laughs> it was really bad. Um, but yeah, I I, for someone who has a master's and a PhD in library science, I am very embarrassed by the way my books are organized. <laughs> and that it's just got to be okay. Like I just you know I know where the book is. It might not be in alphabetical order, but. I don't have time. I've actually hired um, former students to come to my house and alphabetize my books. Uh, I won't hire students while while they're still while I'm still grading them. But um, you know, after my students graduated at my previous institution at St. Catherine University, um, I I've hired them to be a babysitter. Uh, one of them was like, Can I please alphabetize your books for you? And <laughs> I was like, Yeah, yeah, you can. So um I've you know that that helps too. I'm very happy to outsource things that I cannot do myself or that I don't have time to do myself
0: that's super smart but that's great that you're able to give yourself some forgiveness because it makes me feel a little yeah. bit better it's like a hot mess that's why it's a, nobody can see uh yeah people have asked when I had it unblurred they were oh. like when I was in graduate school are like are those books gonna fall on you and hurt oh you? <laughs> and it's it literally floor to ceiling yeah when you're studying children's books, it's like you think, oh, it's just one children's book. They're not that thick, and then no. you, like, boom. There's so like, many, and you know, it just it's hard to like let mm-hmm. go of those kind of things that I've Yeah, I just really yeah love having a physical book, and I know that yeah. there are some people that live and die by their Kindle, but I'm just like, mm. no, nope. I just I love looking no. at the pretty illustrations i love reading the Mm -hmm. the page Mm -hmm.
1: turns yes yes yeah i'm i very much love reading in print um the other day my husband asked me if i could just have pdfs on my computer and not have so many filing cabinets and i said no (laughs) i said i nope i still have my um unpacking the knapsack of white privilege article the first one that i ever printed out when i was um in college between 1998 and 2002 I still have my original print of it um, because I would rather read it in print even though I know oh, it's available no. <laughs> as as a PDF. Um, I it's just you know it's harder harder on your eyes mm. um, and and yeah and I know for accessibility it's it's good for people who need to read in larger print and, and so on. but uh, for me personally I would rather read a book. Um, I would rather read an article, etc um, in print.
0: And so if you could go back in time to your younger self and give yourself Uh, advice on being an author, whether academic or being a children's book, uh, nonfiction writer, like what advice would you give yourself? I'm curious. I'm
1: fascinated. Yeah. Yeah. um so I I did okay in school um but I would have taken harder classes and I would have challenged myself more if I knew that I was going to end up where I ended up like I didn't take AP English I loved the English classes I took I had great English teachers um I still remember them fondly and you know I like I just I loved taking English but for some reason I didn't take AP English and I don't know if that would have made a huge difference but It might have um so i would i would take harder classes um i would i would read a lot more even though i was voracious as a you know a voracious reader as a child i would i still wish that i had read more as a kid as a college student um even when i was in grad school it's funny i got a lot of reading done during finals week like when i was avoiding um (laughs) preparing for exams and things but um yeah, I would, I would read a lot more. And I, you know, one of the things that I say when I'm um, giving presentations is I did not meet a children's book writer who looked like me until I was um, in graduate school. Um, Linda Sue Park, Young Suk Choi, Anna, those were the first Korean American children's book writers I met in 2002, 2003. Um, but if I knew that I was going to study and then write children's books as a grown-up, I would have... Um, asked my mom to help me find opportunities to meet authors and illustrators um, as a kid if they ever came to my local library or bookstore I don't I have no memory of ever doing that Um, so now when I talk to my students you know I I encourage them to get on their local independent library um, email list on their author favorite author illustrator email list because then you know often they'll Send out an announcement. Hey, I'm doing a book tour. Um, like one of my friends, Stephen Shaskin, just did a, I think, a five-city book tour or something. Um, and you know, A Deep has a great, um, a great newsletter. Debbie Macuguil Florence. A lot of authors and illustrators send out newsletters about their book tours. Um, and so, um, I wish that I had had opportunities to meet authors and illustrators when I was younger, um, especially the ones who look like me, who were writing at the time when I was a child reader. Um that's yeah, so those are some things that I wish I had done differently and that I would tell a young aspiring writer.
0: Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So can I ask mm-hmm. is there anything that you're currently reading that you would um, hear with us <laughs> yeah. that's a good read that I need to go by?
1: Yeah. <laughs> um so during the semester, I usually don't read much outside of what I'm teaching. Um, but I victory stand by um Tommy Smith and Derek Barnes and their illustrator um, Dawood Anya Wheelie, I believe. Yeah, but this I mean, this was, I believe, long listed for the National Book Award. And it's just a phenomenal book. It is it is so, so good. It's a great graphic memoir. I also read The Flag by Tamika Fryer-Brown, illustrated by Nicholas Smith, who illustrated the 1619 Project picture book, Born on the Water. And I was blown away. Um, I actually was fortunate to have lunch with Derek and Tamika over the summer um, when I drove through North Carolina. And Tamika told me about the flag. And I was like, oh my goodness, because it's about the Confederate flag. And I was just so impressed at her courage in taking on such a such a contentious topic. Um, But I think she did a phenomenal job. And Nicholas Smith's illustrations, obviously, are really, really stunning and beautiful. Um, So those are two books that come to mind. And the other one that I wanted to share with you, because I was thinking about this when I saw I reviewed the questions you were going to ask, there is a new picture book called Where We Come From. Um, It's uh, written by four Minnesotans, Diane Wilson, John Coy, Shannon Gibney, and Young Shin, and they all have different backgrounds. And it's this really beautiful book about where they came from, about their heritage, their migration journeys. Um, you know, their um, you know, it, it's just so gorgeous. And then the illustrator, Dion Mbd, is the same illustrator as Bao Phi's, um Hello Mandarin Duck picture book. And his, the illustrations are just amazing. Um, and so this book has gotten a lot of really great reviews. It's, it's called Where We Come From. Um, and just showing, you know, it's, it is it is one of those like diverse books that shows different people. But it's just so beautiful and poetic. Um, it, it's just amazing. And, and so that was published by Carol Rhoda, uh, which is a local Minnesota publisher. And, and they do phenomenal books, too. So, yeah, that's the, the third book I wanted to share with you. Well, thank you, Sarah. And
0: thank mm-hmm. you so much for your time today. This was, mm-hmm. I've learned so much. Like, I'm literally like, wow, blown <laughs> yeah. away. And I know your, your students much get so much out of um, having you as a professor. So um, thank you for your time. And um, I can't wait to buy some of your books. And actually, I'm going to buy that Asian uh, American youth literature book, because I
1: saw that one. Isn't that out? It's, it's not out yet. Paul, I, and, our, and I are still working on it. And it's, you know, it's one of those things that's like, but new books keep coming out and we want to keep writing about them. And at some point you just have to stop. That's what my advisors told me when I was doing my dissertation. Sarah, more books are going to come out every year. Like two to three books about Korean adoptees came out every year. They're like, you just have to stop at some point and say, no, like we're ending it here. Um, So Paul and I also need to just like end it here and, and just finish that book. But no, it's not available yet.
0: Okay, well yeah. I'm gonna look when I'll have my eyes out for that one next but okay. definitely <laughs> okay. want a copy of that. Yeah. Um but thank you and um yes. thank you everybody for listening to my creative life. Bye. Bye.